This week on Physically Spiritual, I continue the series on food by exploring animals. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. We are going through our series on food, and we are about midway through with this episode. So we started out just talking about some preparation of what a Catholic worldview is. Then we answered the question, what is food? We looked at soil and that in plants, and now we're going to look at animals. So in this series, we're making our way up what's been traditionally called the ladder of being, or what some people have called the great chain of being. It's something that ancient philosophers noticed that from, from minerals plants to animals to humans and then to angels and God, there's this, this sort of building where uh, the, the things that are higher on the ladder sort of include the characteristics of those things that are lower on the ladder, at least for physical things. So based on this, we might just ask the simple question, what is an animal? Well, based on this, animals have senses, they're capable of movement, and they have physical appetites. Now, with that said, we have to recognize there's a certain gradient to this, right? To some extent, plants have appetites. They want sunlight. If you place a plant near sunlight but not in sunlight, you might notice it'll actually grow in such a way to move itself into the sun. The plant will start to bend. And it's a very, a very slow kind of a locomotion. Uh, so, so plants, to varying degrees, have these qualities too, but then animals possess them to a higher degree, especially the, the capacity of sensing. So it's clear that humans, from our, our earliest existence, were consuming animals for food. And, and scientists make observations about, for example, the human teeth, human digestive system, and other qualities of us to demonstrate the fact that, that we are omnivores, meaning we're suited to really eat plants and animals both to some extent, and, and that our ancestors... Uh, unless for maybe a religious purpose, didn't discriminate between plants and animals, and they would just eat whatever is available in order to survive. Uh, you can make arguments on, on both sides, that, that plants are appropriate human food and that animals are appropriate human food based on various characteristics of the human body. Humans made a shift. We, I talked in previous episode about the history of food and this kind of agricultural revolution that humans had. Scientists believe somewhere in the ballpark of eight to 10 to 12,000 years ago. So part of this was the domestication of animals, that certain animals were, uh, were cared for by humans and raised by humans, as opposed to in the past where the animals were maybe hunted and ate by humans. Uh, some people today actually call into question the ethics of keeping animals on farms in the first place. And, and we do need to recognize that, that not all farming practices are ethical. There's obviously ways that the animals aren't cared for properly. They're not given appropriate food for their biology. They might be uh, killed in an unethical way that causes undue suffering, etc., etc. So we do need to recognize that there are some unethical farming practices that we can point out around the world. But if you really consider what, what's the goal of an animal, like what does the animal really want? An animal wants food. It wants protection and it wants to reproduce. 
the the biological drives in the animal are are pushing it for the continuation of the species for its own survival and its ability to pass on its genetics to the next generation. So if you look at it from this perspective, the animals that created a symbiotic relationship with humans are actually the most successful species other than humans in the entire world. Animals like like cows and like pigs and like chickens and cats and dogs and these other animals that we live in, in close relationship with over the years are now vastly overpopulated around the world compared to other animals that, that aren't domesticated, that don't have this symbiotic relationship. So we have to, uh, we have to judge the animals based on sort of their own ends, their own vision for reality, their own, uh, their own goals, and see that this, this isn't actually all that bad for them either. There's, there's I think, a myth be, behind some philosophies that um, try to renounce animal agriculture. And, and one of these myths are that, that animals in nature live a better life than animals in captivity. Right? In some senses, you might be able to make this argument that the environment's more closely suited to, to their existence or something like that. But a couple things we have to keep in mind is that um, there's rarely any good death in nature outside of human civilization. <laughs> I'll say that again. There's rarely a good death in nature outside of human civilization. And by good, I simply mean like free of suffering. You know, so think of how do most animals die? Well, they're typically killed by another animal, meaning they're literally ripped apart. They're punctured by teeth, they're scratched by claws, they're strangled to death, and, and then they're slowly consumed. Sometimes they might be still living when the other animal starts eating them. Uh, animals then, if they don't, aren't killed in early ages of their life, ate when they're infants or something like that, they might be ate when they're older when they start to slow down. They can't keep up with the pack. They can't keep up with the herd. They've lost their edge. They're challenged by another member of their own species. And they might be killed in some kind of a competition or something like that. Right? So, so animals might be killed later in life, but it's only because they can't defend themselves anymore. So we have to dispel this myth <laughs> that, that animals not in captivity are better off than animals in captivity. Living in, in, in an untamed environment is a life of, of constant fear of being attacked by a predator. It's, it's a life of, of uh, constant need to seek out food because starvation is always a possibility for every animal. And then the inevitable end is being murdered by another animal, being killed by another animal. Um, so all this is to say that, that yes, agriculture can be unethical, and we, we do need to go to, I think, a great lengths to, to care for the animals that have entered these relationships with us as a species, to make sure they've, they're given food appropriate for their, their species, give environments that are appropriate for them, and also make sure that there's a death provided to them that's without suffering. But on the other hand, we also have to dismiss the myth that that in an untamed environment, the animals are, are just better off, <laughs> right? It's, there's a space in the middle that I think we can enter into. Now, with that said, some of these animals that have entered relationships with humans are 
almost kind of miraculous. Because <laughs> as humans, while we can eat plants, there's many plants we cannot consume. Right? So for some plants, we just eat the fruit. For others, we eat the leaves. And other plants, we can actually eat the stalks. But, but there's many things that grow in nature, as you all probably know, that you can't eat. Right? There's certain berries on different trees that are poisonous to humans. And then there's a lot of stuff out there that provides no nutritional value to us. It might just be fiber, but it doesn't provide any calories. Well, a lot of this stuff that humans can't eat, other animals can And I want to especially highlight here ruminants because ruminants primarily live on stuff like grass and other stuff that grows up in field or in lightly forested areas that humans can't consume. And what they do is they, they literally are able to upgrade, upgrade. Remember we talked in plants about nitrogen, that every plant has nitrogen in it from the soil. Well, these ruminants are able to eat things that humans can't digest and then in their stomachs, either by the digestive process or by the microorganisms in their microbiome, they're, they're able to process and break apart this tough material and then they make it into themselves. So they basically turn stuff that humans can't eat into animal protein and animal fat, which is very easily digested by most people and turned into nutrients for our survival. So, so they, they basically upgrade all of this stuff. They uplevel all this stuff that isn't appropriate for human food. About 55% of the, the surface of the earth is pasture. And a significant portion of this pasture cannot be turned into, um, cannot be turned into places where we can grow crops easily. And then there's a certain percent of pasture that's also lightly forested. Right? So animals can actually graze in forested space too. So this is uh, what's sometimes very uh, strongly decried by people, this kind of slash and burn agriculture. What it means is what people do is they'll cut down trees, they'll cut down forest and, and burn all of the smaller stuff out so then they can plant crops on that ground. Well, all of that space could be used to create food for humans but you could just pasture animals on the space. Right? You don't have to cut down the trees. You might just need to clear out some of the brush so the animals can make their way around it more easily. So there's a, a large percent of the, the territory of the world that even if we wanted to grow crops on them, either we can't because of the quality of the soil or the rockiness of the territory, or we, we shouldn't because we don't want to cut down the forests and reduce um, the other habitats that are available in nature. So ruminants have this, this second quality. They're not, they're not only up-leveling, upcycling, upgrading nitrogen out of things we can't digest into, uh, into things that are great for us, but they also have this ability to, to uh, grow and make food in places where we can't or shouldn't grow crops. Ruminants also can provide a, 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 a beautiful uh, relationship with plants on a farm. So one of the, the traditional um, one of the traditional approaches to farming was to rotate not just different crops on a field, but also rotate animals into fields. So there'd be a rotation of a, a crop, and then various animals, and then a different crop. And by doing this, each different layer that's, that's coming through, 
something different is being taken from the soil, but then something different is being given to the soil. Modern farmers who use practices called, um, called sustainable agriculture or sometimes holistic agriculture um, use these practices. And they might do something like this. They might, might plant a field and harvest the crop, but then, then leave like all the stalks of the plants there. And then they might send, let's say, maybe some chickens onto the field. And those chickens will go through and eat up all the bugs and, and parasites and, and pests and things of that nature. And all the, the meantime, they'll be what? They'll be defecating on the field, depositing nitrogen onto the field with their fecal matter. And then after that, you might bring some, some livestock onto the field, some ruminants, and they'll eat up all of the stalks and all the other stuff as, as different plants and weeds are growing up in that field. And then after that, those, those, uh, those ruminants are then depositing their own fecal matter, right? Their own manure, basically fertilizer onto the field, right? And then, then all of that can be, uh, be put together to then improve the quality of that soil. So then by the, the next time you, you plant crops on that field, you need less synthetic things added to it, right? Less maybe pesticides are needed because, well, a lot of the, the pests have been eaten up by the chickens and then less fertilizer might be needed because... Um, because all the animals have deposited their fecal matter on the field. So this is just a, an example of how, how animals can enter into a, uh, a symbiotic relationship with the rest of the farm, with the rising of plants, in order to re- reduce our dependency on various, um, various synthetic chemicals like nitrogen fertilizers and also uh, reduce the, the need for things like pesticides. So when we think of an animal as food, what it's primarily providing to us as humans is fat and protein. There's really no carbohydrates in an animal. And one of the beautiful things about animal fat and animal protein is it's more generally more bioavailable to us humans than, than plant fats and plant protein is. Now, what I mean by bioavailable is when, when you eat something, before it becomes you, a part of your flesh, a part of your body, it often has to go through a process of being turned into the basic elements that your body would use. And with that process, in general, the, the fats and the proteins that come out of plants need to go through some kind of a transformation in your body. And, and your body is oftentimes well-suited to perform this transformation. Sometimes it's ill-suited to perform this transformation. So there's always a kind of a a percent that gets used by your body and then a percent that can't be used by your body, right? So if let's say you ate 10 grams of protein and that is some kind of plant source of protein, like a pea protein or a soy protein or something like that. Well, maybe let's say, and I'm just guessing numbers, I'll throw some links in the show notes of of actual uh, data on this. Uh, let's say maybe only five grams of that protein are then able to be utilized by your body to then go into your muscles and, and your other, other tissue. But on the other hand, you might have an animal protein, like a whey or, or actually eating meat. And this animal protein, it, it more closely resembles what's actually in your body, right? The biology of a cow is closer to the biology of a human than the biology of a soy plant is or a pea plant is. So when your body receives that animal protein, 
there's much less processing that needs to happen before that can be used by your body because it's more biologically similar to you. So much more of that protein that you eat is actually utilizable by your body. And that's what we mean by it's simply more bioavailable. Another example of this are with, um, with fats. So in the, episode, the first episode about what is food, we talked about different essential macronutrients, sorry, and essential fatty acids of linoleic acid and alpha-linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 and an omega-3 acid. Now, these linoleic and alpha-linoleic acid can be turned into what your body needs, right? So so the, the kinds of fats, for example, that make up the membranes of your cells and the kinds of fats that that are the precursors to a lot of the hormones in your body or, or, or enable different, uh, different processes that happen in your body that are essential for the continuation of life. These can be created by the plant forms of this omega-6 or omega-3 acid. But every person, depending on your genetics, is either, uh, either better suited to make this change in your body from the plant form of the fat to the animal form that your body needs, or less well-suited. And we might be able to just make an assumption here that it really kind of depends on our ancestors, that our ancestors have a more plant-rich diet, and so there was kind of a selection over time toward the capacity to perform this, uh, this transformation in the body of the fats, or that our ancestors have a more animal-rich diet, in which case this, this kind of transformation was less necessary. Well, this is important to know. I mean, a lot of research um, focuses on the importance of the balance between omega-3 and omega-6 fat in our body. And an overconsumption of omega-6 fat is often associated with a lot of different chronic health conditions. Uh, so, so with this in mind, if you're eating a, a plant-only diet and thinking because you're getting linoleic acid and alpha-linoleic acid, your body is getting all of the fats it needs for to be healthy, right? That really is contingent on your body's ability to perform that transformation, to make those fats into what's appropriate for your biology. So all this is to say that that the nutrients, both the the protein and the fat that you're getting from animals is more bioavailable than the protein and fat that you're receiving from plants. And with that, then your body's able to more easily use it and more easily able to make it into you. All right, let's switch gears now and talk a little bit about animals from a theological perspective. You know, the first eight chapters of Genesis, this period from the very beginning, it was part of God's commands, actually, in some sense, not to eat animals. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 29 said, God also said, See, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit on it to be your food. It's not until Genesis chapter 9, so we're talking here after the flood, our Lord tells them, any living creature that moves about shall be yours to eat. I give them all to you as I did the green plants. Only meat with its lifeblood still in it you shall not eat. Indeed, for your own lifeblood I will demand an accounting. From every animal, I will demand it. And from every human being, each one for the blood of another, I will demand accounting for human life. So we see God gives all of the animals to 
uh, to Noah and his family for food in addition to the plants. There's this caveat here, this note here about the lifeblood. What's important to realize is that the, the Jewish, the ancient Jewish people had an understanding of blood that's different than ours. They also didn't have the same concept of soul or spirit that we had in these ancient times. So they believed the life force, the sort of essence of the thing was in the lifeblood. That's why they didn't just call it blood, but lifeblood. So this is why, like in the, the Jewish, the later Jewish temple rituals, a lot of the instructions are what to do of, with the blood of the animal that was sacrificed. Sometimes it would be sprinkled on the altar. Sometimes it would be collected. There's even times where it was sprinkled on the people. And this is because of this, this understanding of what the blood was, that it was the life force, that it was this, this deeper part of the person. This is, and also the deeper part of the animal. And so this is why in the prescription about food and then in the later Jewish laws, there's this, um, this understanding that you handle the blood differently than the rest of what's in the animal. Let's now fast forward to the New Testament. What does Jesus say about food? Well, in Matthew chapter 15, he simply says, it's not what enters one's mouth that defiles that person, but what comes out of the mouth is what defiles one. The Jewish people had these purity laws. They had these, these rules about food, what to eat, what not to eat, what was kosher, what wasn't kosher in the modern parlance. And so in, in light of this, Jesus is, is confronting this culture and in starting to invite them into considering maybe a hierarchy of goods, right? Is it more important about what you eat or is it more important about what you say? He's, he's gently inviting them to consider maybe the words that you say are more important than worrying about the food that you eat. In, in Acts, the early the apostles had to wrestle with this question because they're coming out of a Jewish society. So, so with that, they had the Jewish laws on food. Yet again, they're becoming Christians and they now have to square their practice based on Jesus's words with their previous practice as, as Jewish people and then people who are Jewish that are converting to the faith. So this is an experience that Peter had. Acts chapter 9 says, The next day, while they were on their way and nearing the city, Peter went up to the roof terrace to pray at about noontime. He was hungry and wished to eat. And while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something resembling a large sheet coming down, lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all the earth's four-legged animals and reptiles and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, Get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. But Peter said, Certainly not, sir, for never have I eaten anything profane and unclean. The voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you are not to call profane. This happened three times, and then the object was taken up into the sky. Later, when the, the early disciples, apostles, are wrestling with this now further and trying to turn it into, into a rule for the people to follow, uh, in Acts chapter 15, this is what they decide. They say, it's the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us not to place any burden beyond these necessities, namely to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meats of strangled animals, and from unlawful marriage. If you keep free of these, you will be doing what is right. 
So what we see is the early church is wrestling with this question of what to eat, what, what meat to permit, what animals to consume. This is where they land. With Jesus' teaching there in Matthew chapter 15, that all of the animals are appropriate to eat. While there might be certain circumstances where you don't, like an animal sacrificed idol, the consumption of the blood, an animal that's, that's killed a certain way, right? We, like I said earlier, we need to focus that, that animals do need to be raised in an ethical way. They do need to be cared for. But on the other hand, it's not that any particular animal is categorically uh, not good for food or should be avoided by Christians. I want to share a couple more quotes here, specifically uh, from our church tradition. And these are really interesting. And I don't think a lot of people are are familiar with these teachings. So this is from the Council of Florence. And this is uh, part of it contributed by Pope Eugene IV. This is what he says. He says, Thus it declares that the nature of no food which society admits is to be condemned, and that no distinction is to be made by anyone at all, whether man or woman, between animals, and by what, whether, whatever kind of death they meet their end. Although for the health of body, for the exercise of virtue, for regular and ecclesiastical discipline, many things not denied should be given up. According to the apostle, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. So what he's saying here is, is there, there isn't any animal food that we as Catholics should condemn or should not eat. And some of these early teachings are especially trying to address people who, whom are, are continuing to, uh, to look at the scripture and, and assume kind of this Jew, Jewish purity law about food. So we shouldn't make any kind of food unlawful, but then he is saying that if it's for health or for virtue or for some kind of discipline, for some kind of asceticism, you might choose to give up food, right? But we shouldn't restrict what the church doesn't restrict. We shouldn't create additional laws and additional rules beyond that which our church and our Lord give us. This is from the Council of Toledo. So in in the Council of Toledo, uh, this is... um, I believe paragraph 18, it says, oh no, paragraph 17, it says, if anyone says or believes that the flesh of birds or of animals, which has been given for food, not only ought to be abstained from for the chastising of the body, but ought to be abhorred, let them be anathema. Now this is pretty strong language here. So if the, if the flesh uh, of birds or animals being given to food, if someone thinks that ought to be abhorred, meaning that that should ought to be disdained, that ought to be rejected, that they should be anathema. Anathema means excommunicated. <laughs> so so the, the church is saying, well, you might choose not to eat meat, right? You might make that choice for yourself, either as, as a, an ethical stance or maybe as a, as a discipline. But if you are trying to like evangelize against meat. This council is literally suggesting that your membership of the church is in jeopardy. Then finally, the Council of Braga. This is in the sixth century. It says, If anyone considers the foods of the flesh unclean, which God has given for the use of men, and not for the affliction of his body, but as if he thought it unclean, so abstains from these, that he does not taste vegetables cooked with meats. Just as Manichaeus and Priscillian had said, 
let him be anathema. All right, so some of these ancient heresies like Manichaeanism, Priscillianism, right, these ancient religions reassumed these Jewish purity laws. They wouldn't even eat vegetables if they had touched meat. And what it's saying is if you're doing this out of the motivation of believing that it's a religious practice, that these are truly unclean things to eat or it changes your relationship to God, it's saying let them be anathema once again. That's excommunication. That's removal from the church. Right, so so our, our tradition presents some pretty strong language around not, not abstaining from meat, right? Abstaining from meat can be a, a powerful spiritual practice. Obviously, it's a part of the church's practice on Fridays in the universal law of the church throughout the whole year. And it's also a, a practice on days of fasting, like Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. But now, on the other hand, it, it doesn't sound from the tradition that it's appropriate for someone to become an evangelist for let's say, a vegan cause, that someone should go out and try to, to say that meat's not good, that meat shouldn't be ate. Now, you might make claims about, about the ethics of farming practices or the way that animals are cared for or about the amount of meat that's necessary in the diet. But on the other hand, we have to, to look at the, the scripture and the tradition of our faith and the teaching of the apostles and admit that, that God is presenting animal food as something that's appropriate for our species and good for us. So as we consider this, I think, uh, now thinking a little bit about human diet, taking into account that, that it's clear that we are suited to be omnivores of both plants and animals, uh, it can be unhealthy to be unnecessarily restrictive in our diets. I'll say that again. It can be unhealthy to be unnecessarily restrictive in our diets. And, and so many people today, what will happen is they might listen to a podcast or read a book or, or, or hear something that, that some popularizer or, or scientist says about the ethics of animal agriculture, some observation about an association of some certain disease with some dietary pattern that came up in some uh, epidemiological research or something like that, and then assume an unnecessarily restrictive diet out of fear. And I think this is something we should be weary of as, as Christians and as people that, that really want to pursue the truth in nature and the truth in science. Uh, so I want to leave you with the exhortation that our Lord God gave St. Peter in his vision. He says, get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. Uh, so as, as we take these words to heart from our Lord, just be at peace. Be at peace that, that, that meat, the, the, the stuff that, that animals provide for us, it's healthy. Our Lord has given it to us for food. Um, so we should, we should eat it in moderation, uh, raise animals in ways that raise their dignity, provide a better life for them than what they would have in an untamed environment, and, and, and give thanks to the Lord for the bounty of the earth that he's given us. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.